you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Genesis chapter 9. And we are working our way through these first 11 chapters of uh, this book. And uh, we're getting close to the end. Uh, We will make it uh, one of these days, Um, but we're not rushing. Genesis chapter 9, starting at verse 8 and going to verse 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and a bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The 600th year of Noah's life probably probably ranks up there as one of the most traumatic 10 events of all humanity. Very few of us will ever come close to experiencing anything like Noah ever did. I was thinking about some of the events of the world in which we live, and many of you are aware of the earthquake that just hit Turkey back in February. 30,000 aftershocks in the three months after the initial Earthquake, 15 million people impacted by it in one way or another. Or the tsunami that struck in Thailand in 2004, where 230,000 people lost their lives. They maybe could sense something of the trauma that Noah and his family must have felt when they stepped off the ark. Imagine for a moment... Noah had just disembarked from 370 years of floating on the ark. And the first 40 days of being on that ark had been like nothing he had ever experienced in his life. The earth had convulsed. It had burst up from the bottom. It had burst down forth from heaven. In fact, the whole earth was reshaped during that time. Everything that had the breath of life, save those that were on the ark, perished. Imagine further the experience of Noah when he disembarked from the ark and first set foot on the new earth that God had created. Destruction and death would have been all around him. Of all the people on the earth, they were the only people left alive. Of all the animals that had been on the earth, only those that were on the ark and disembarked with them were now on the earth. They would have noticed a difference in landscape. They would have sensed a difference in climax or climate. And if you're able to talk with Noah and maybe talk with him years later because there wouldn't be anybody to talk with him initially, 
But if you're able to talk with Noah a few years later and say, Noah, what did you think of the rain? I suspect you would have watched him tremble. I suspect he would have been at a loss of words for some period of time. I suspect you would have seen in him probably still remnants of terror or the trauma that he had experienced as he came through the flood. One wonders if in the early months after the flood, when God did send rain on the earth and a cloud would have appeared in the sky, if Noah and his family relived the trauma of the flood all over again. That would be no way to live your life. Into that trauma and into that terror, God steps with his word of promise, with his word of covenant to Noah and his family and all the earth. In Genesis 9, 1-7, we see what God commands Noah to do, how he should stabilize his life on this new earth. He is told to reproduce, he is told to rule, he is told to eat, and he is told to execute. But now we come to Genesis 9, 8 to 17, and what we read there is what God is going to do. In three verses, verse 8, verse 12, and verse 17, God speaks. And in his speaking, he tells Noah exactly what he is going to do. He says, everything that has breath, all humankind, all creation, then, now, and to the end of the earth will be preserved. Seven times in these verses, you read the word covenant. Covenant is an important biblical word in the history of God's people and the history of redemption. We remember a covenant of God every time we partake of the Lord's table. This is the new covenant in my blood. God makes a promise to us through the shed blood of Christ that we will be forever his if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Covenants are an integral part of salvation history. But a covenant is a binding agreement. A covenant is a promise. And this is so important that when God speaks to Noah, it says that God says to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, we've talked about that word over the years, behold. It, it means sort of listen up, sit up and take notice of these words that I'm going to say. Understand the things that I'm about to tell you. I am going to confirm my covenant with you. And God tells Noah and his sons that he is going to make a, a binding agreement. He is going to make a promise with them. He is going to make a covenant of preservation with them and their sons and their descendants and all future generations and all animals that live on the earth. God is going to make a promise to him. God is going to give him his word, so to speak, that God is never going to stop he will never stop the rain from falling, but he will never, ever flood the earth again in judgment. It's as if God says to Noah, I've told you what you have to do, Noah. Now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to preserve and sustain life until the end of this age. And so as we think through this, through verses in this covenant, think of it in a, in a couple of ways. Who gives it? Who gives this covenant? Well, God gives it to them. When is the covenant given? And this is helpful, I think, to just process. When is it given? It's given after a time of crisis. It's given after a time of trauma. Why is it given? Well, it's given to reassure these individuals. It's given to comfort them. It's an incredible covenant. And I want us to just look at a few of the aspects of it uh, to fix them in our minds for this week. 
First of all, think about the breadth of this covenant or the scope of this covenant that God makes to Noah. We often think that God just made a promise to Noah. And he did that in verse 9, in verse 12, in verse 15. God reiterates to Noah, this is my covenant with you, Noah. But it's also more than Noah. It's to his sons and his descendants. In verse 9 and verse 12, we have that reiterate that God says it's not only to Noah, but to his sons and his descendants. And then you come to verse 10 twice in verse 12, verse 15 and verse 16. And it's a covenant with every living thing. And then you come to verse 10, and it's a covenant with all the creatures that have come off the ark with Noah. And then in verse 11 and verse 15, twice, and in verse 16, it is a covenant with all flesh. And then in verse 11 and verse 13 and verse 17, it is a covenant made with the whole earth. This is a massive declaration that God is making. The breadth of this covenant includes all of humanity and all of creation from that day forward until the end of this age. This is why we think we need to look at Genesis 1 to 11 and understand that this is pre-salvation history. This is God's word to all of humanity, not just his redeemed people, but to all of humanity. And here, God's covenant and God's promise covers the entire realm of creation. And in it, he assures their preservation and their sustenance until the end of this age. This is a wide, wide net that God is casting. God is concerned not only with human life, he is concerned with animal life. He is concerned with everything that he has made. This covenant of God is to sustain the whole world. It's this promise of God to be good to all that he has made, all of humanity. Some people, and I think they're right, talk about this as a common grace. This is God's promise to preserve and sustain all of humanity and all the earth, whether they are good or bad, whether they are evil or righteous, whether they are obedient or disobedient, whether they are sinful or not. This is God's promise to all he has made to preserve it and to sustain it. By this covenant, God guarantees the orderly continuance of all creation. This is an amazing word. This is a, a word that we should not quickly forget or take out of our memories or our minds when we leave this place. This is God's commitment to all that he has made. Its scope and its breadth covers everything in this world. Second thing, the covenant is a permanent covenant. I don't know if you ever asked yourself, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Why has humankind continued for another 4,500 years after the flood when it only continued for 1,650 years from creation to the flood? Why has our world not imploded? Why has our world not been destroyed by God? Why has the wickedness that is so rampant in all of our hearts not been judged by God in the same way that he judged the world when he sent the flood upon it? His covenant that he made with all humanity. He says in verse 9, I make this covenant with you and your descendants after you. I make this covenant with all future generations. 
I make this covenant that water will never again become a deluge to destroy all of flesh. These phrases taken together say that there is a permanent reality to this world in which we live. That all descendants, all future generations, all flesh is sustained and preserved by God's word. I wonder when that word settled in Noah's heart. I wonder if it happened after the first time it rained and he saw the clouds approaching and he began to tremble and he began to shake and he began to maybe look for cover and he began to gather his family and he think, oh no, here it comes again. Or maybe after the second storm that God sent or the fifth storm or the eighth storm and finally he remembered God's promise that God would sustain human life and God would sustain created life. And his heart finally rested, rested in the promise of God. Have your hearts rested in the promises of God? Is there a promise that you have read or a promise that you are clinging to that it's still kind of shaky and circumstances seem to cause you to doubt it? Or have you come to take God at his word and believe what he has spoken? One of the things about the permanence of this promise that strikes me is verse 16. In verse 16, it says, The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the everlasting covenant. It seems that there is something to this covenant that is greater than simple, simply temporal reality or uh, getting us to the end of this age, that this covenant, this promise to sustain all of life extends even farther than this present age in which we live. You think about Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. And around the throne was what? A rainbow. There is a rainbow around the throne of God in heaven. Why this sign of the covenant around the throne in heaven? Why this sign of God's promise to sustain and preserve life around the throne in heaven? Well, at the very least, it's a symbol of grace and mercy. It's a reminder to all who are around the throne and all who observe God that he is a gracious God and that he is a merciful God and that he will always be a gracious and a merciful God. I think this in Revelation 4 at least hints and Genesis chapter 9, verse 16 adds to that some sense that the promise that God makes extends into eternity to come. For we to, her, to whom the trustworthiness of a promise seems to be often on shaky ground, for we whose words often seem to be easily changed or um, circumstances that make things different than three weeks down the road than when we made the first promise. For we who maybe have um, not the ability to see down the road, and so a promise we make is not a promise that we are able to keep down the road. What we have with God is an eternal reminder of his steadfastness, of his never changing, of the permanence of his word given to us of the fact that never, ever will a word of God fail. Never, ever will a word of God change. His is an eternal word, and his covenant is an everlasting one. 
There's another word that's used three times in this text to drive home this notion of permanence. And you'll find it in verse 9, verse 11, and verse 17. It's the word establish, or in some of your Bibles, it will be the word confirm. It's a word that, that means to make stand. It's a word that, that, that suggests when all else falls, this will stand. It's a way of God saying, and it's used in three different tenses, that God initiates this covenant, that God sustains this covenant, and that God will complete this covenant. That there is no chance that this covenant will ever fail. There is no chance that this covenant will ever be reworked or redone. The psalmist says that the Lord fulfills his promise for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Another writer says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We sing, God is faithful. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And we sing that song because we know God is true to his word. We know God is able to keep his word. We know that God is bound to his word because of his character and his trustworthiness. Of this I am sure, writes Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And don't we all look to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith? Don't we hang on to those promises? Don't we cling to the word of God? Don't we, when we fall or when we fail, look to God and say, God, I know that you will finally perfect what you have started in my life. There are no incomplete works with you. Loved ones, God will sustain his creation. God will sustain humanity in this age and in the age to come. As one has said, the human race is not sovereign over the human race. I hope you understand that. There is no human leader, there is no human ruler, there is no human despot who can decide on a whim that they're going to destroy this whole world. Not a single one. There is no single group of animals that on their own can decide that they're going to destroy human life on this earth. God has made a covenant to sustain and preserve this earth. There will be no nuclear holocaust that destroys the entire world. There will be no ice age that destroys the entire world. God has promised that that will not take place. And so take this pill before you go to bed at night. Trust in God. Turn off the dread box and trust in the promise of God. He will preserve and sustain life until the end of this age. There's the generosity of this covenant as well. Think about when God gave this covenant. God didn't give this covenant to perfect people. God didn't give this covenant to sinless people. God gave this covenant to those who were still sinful from the early days of their life up. God knew that we would still rebel against him. God knew that we would still sin against him. God knew that we would still disregard him. God knew that we would still cast him behind our backs. God knew that some of us would say there is no God. And yet God made a covenant with humankind and with all of creation. Instead of wrath and judgment, God has promised grace and kindness to all he has made. 
The covenant that God makes is the basis for his common goodness to all humanity, whether we are good or evil, whether we are righteous or wicked. The sun shines on the whole world. The rain falls on the whole world. God causes seed to grow on the wicked's fields and the righteous fields because God has made a promise to preserve human life. This is his witness. The fact that the world still exists today, the fact that there is still human life, the fact that there is still animal life points to the promise of God to preserve and sustain the world. In Acts 4.17, it says, although he did not leave himself without a witness. What is the witness? The witness is that we're still here. The witness is still that there is humanity and animal life around us. Although he did not leave himself without a witness. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and with happiness. This covenant that God gives to us is a covenant of God's grace. The second thing about this covenant and its generosity is that it all rests on God. This is an amazing thing that God says, I'm not going to leave this up to the whims of humankind to ensure. God absorbs it all by his sovereign might and his sovereign power. He is sovereign over this whole world. It is in his hands. We sing that song, you've got the whole world in your hands. And it is very, very true. And that should enable us to live securely. That should enable us to get up in the morning, no matter what is happening in the world, even though there might be a little trauma here or a little trauma there, we can trust that God's got this world in his hands. And we can go to bed no matter what has happened that day. And we can go to bed and we can go to sleep because we know that God has got this world in his hands. We don't live in a world that is subject ultimately to the whim of any man or animal. God is in control. God is real. And that changes everything. Let's unpack this a little. I, I don't know if you noticed this phrase. It, it stopped me. 9.14, in Genesis 9.14. Look at what it says. When I bring clouds over the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth. What do you think when you read that? Do you just blow over it? Or do you think that, oh, this is just something that happens and, you know, or, or do you think, really, God, you bring clouds over the earth? Who controls the rain? Who controls the clouds that fly above the heavens? Who determines that water will be lifted up of the oceans and sucked up into clouds and then winds will blow those clouds over mountains and then when they reach the prairies or they reach other desert places that they will unleash their, their rain in ways that doesn't destroy the earth and they will water the ground and then that water will make it safe back to the ocean and that it will be caught up again into the clouds and repeat the cycle again and again and again. Who controls that? God does. Every time you look at a cloud in the sky, my God is controlling that cloud. Every time the rain pours down, as it did these last, this last week, and what a refreshing thing it was to say, thank you, God, for watering my little part of the world. 
The psalmist in Psalm 108, verse 4 says, For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your faithfulness extends to directing the clouds. Your faithfulness extends to determining that those clouds will carry water. Your faithfulness extends to even making sure that there is rain to water this world that you have made. Job 36, 27. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain which the skies pour down and drop on man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? No, but if you understand God, yes. Job 37, 11, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. Psalm 135, 7, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth and who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This must have been ears or music to the ears of Noah. God controls the clouds. My God has promised never, ever to flood the earth again in this way. And my God can do it because my God directs the clouds. Then did you notice again the words that God uses? He says, my covenant. Not our covenant, but my covenant. I myself. Never we. You don't find that in these verses. It's not you and I. It's not a covenant that, that, that is sort of two-sided in any way or that's even asymmetrical in any way. It's God's covenant. This is on God's plate. This is God's world. In other words, this covenant is unilateral. It's not dependent on you or I. It's dependent solely on the character of God, on the power of God, on the might of God, on the promise of God. Every living thing depends upon God. Every human depends upon God. Humankind has done its best to destroy this earth. Humankind has done its best to want to destroy the earth. But loved ones, that will not happen because God has made a promise that he will sustain and preserve this earth until the end of this age. It's an unconditional promise as well. But that it simply means we aren't part of the equation. It's not that God will do his part if we do our part, or if we don't do our part, God won't do his part. God is not bound to us in any way to maintain or keep this covenant. It is all on God's back. It is all rooted in God's character. It all depends on God's faithfulness. It will not be in jeopardy because we mess up. And it is inviolable. That means it is indestructible. That means it will never go away. That means it will never fail. Why? Because it is God's covenant. Because God is an eternal God. Because God's word is an eternal word. Because God is faithful to his word and he will never, ever, ever change his word. He can't. Find comfort in this. Find rest in this. It wasn't just a covenant for Noah's day. It is a covenant for your day and my day, for the world in which we live. Through this covenant, God binds himself to all of creation. And then the final thing is its sign. God confirms his covenant with a sign as he does his covenant with Abraham, as he does with his covenant in Israel. 
His sign is a bow in the sky. We have come to refer to that sign in the sky as a rainbow. That's how it appears to us in the sky, but that's not the word that's used here. It's simply the word bow that is used in the Bible to describe what's in the sky. Some of you may know that it was in 1978 that the rainbow was first flown in San Francisco to represent the gay rights movement and to represent a sexual revolution that was taking place. And that was a difficult day for many of God's people, and it still is a difficult day for many of God's people. But there's another way to look at this. I can't remember when. I don't remember where I was at the time, but I was looking at some sidewalk where, uh, sidewalk that had been painted with a rainbow. And I was actually, as I saw it, first of all, there was something that rose up inside of me. It says, how could this be? But then there was something else that rose up inside of me. Say, wait a minute. This is God's sign. This is God's promise. This is a symbol of God's grace and mercy. And then I thought, never in a million years could a group of Christians have gone to a city council somewhere or a school board somewhere and said, you know what? We have this sign, a promise of God, of a rainbow. And we would like to paint this sign on buildings and on sidewalks. And we would like to have flags and, and, and tell everybody about God and his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace. They would have looked at us and said, you're mad. But God, in his amazing providence and in his sovereignty, and I think also with a sense of humor, and I think also with a sense of mercy and grace to those who believe they have hijacked this symbol. God has presented before the world over a symbol, a sign that points people back to God and his grace and his mercy. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord for these ways in our world. And so the sign is this rainbow that we see in the sky. It's a sign of the covenant, a sign of God's common grace to all humanity in spite of our sin. This is an amazing thing to me, that in spite of our sin, God says, I will be merciful to you. I will be patient with you. The word bow is the word that's used here, and it's a word that's often used for a weapon of warfare, of warriors who draw their bow in battle. It's a used of God who draws his bow in battle and flings forth his arrows over the earth. God is depicted as a warrior in Scripture. And it says, though God drew his bow in battle through the judgment that came upon the flood. But after that, it's like God hung his bow up in the sky for all to see him declaring peace with humanity and peace to this world in which we live. The symbol of war and destruction has now become a symbol of peace that God hangs in the sky every time it rains. Or not every time it rains, but many times that it rains. What a powerful reminder of the promise-keeping God, who is our God. Why did God give it? He gave it to reassure Noah and his descendants and all creation that never, ever again would he destroy all human flesh in such a way. It's a reminder that our day is not a day of judgment. It's a day of peace. It's a sign of God's mercy to sinners. It's a reminder of God's patience. And as we know, as Paul says in Romans, it's your kindness that what? 
leads us to repentance. I don't understand why so many millions of us have been born under the promise of God's covenant sealed with a rainbow to be gracious and merciful and generous and kind to us. But that's what God has done. Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, remember that God has made a covenant to preserve you to preserve your families, to preserve your descendants after you, to preserve the animals that he has created until the end of this earth, and I believe even longer than that. This is a way, too, of God ensuring that his promise of Genesis 3.15 will be realized. What is Genesis 3.15? That the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman but the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In order for that promise to be realized, God needed to preserve humanity for thousands of years. So reflect on the patience and the kindness and the mercy of God that bring you to repentance. Reflect on the rainbow every time you see it, that it's the symbol of God's mercy. Maybe use that as an opportunity to pray for your husband or your wife to pray for your son or your daughter, to pray for your neighbor who as yet has not responded to the kindness of God in repentance and say, God, you have promised to withhold judgment so that all who seek you might find you and come to repentance. This is what the rainbow declares. It's, it's, it's God's invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will rest. It's God's invitation. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. This is the message of God to us and to our world today. It's what is articulated by Jonah. Remember Jonah as He's at the end of God's mercy towards Nineveh and Noah, uh, Jonah is ticked off. And you remember the words of Noah, uh, Jonah to God? I knew, I knew you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How did Jonah know that? I wonder if it's because he knew about God's covenant and his rainbow in the sky, that this is how God would treat humankind. If you've not yet taken advantage of the grace and the mercy of God in withholding judgment, today is the day to turn to God and say, God, I am sorry. I trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. May I be a recipient of your eternal and everlasting love. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word that was written thousands of years ago, but a word which has still relevance and meaning for us today. I thank you that you are a God who keeps his word. You are a God who keeps his promises. And I pray, Father, that we would not use this time of mercy and grace to flaunt our rebellion to hedge our bets but rather we would realize 
maybe for the first time ever, that you have been merciful and gracious to me in giving me an opportunity to receive mercy and grace. Father, turn hearts towards you, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.